Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Good morning. For those of you who are new here, my name's Dustin. Um, I'm the intern here, and our pastor is out of town this weekend, so I'm in charge. Uh, good luck. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we adore you for who you are, God. We think back on all the things you've done, Lord, throughout history. You are the creator, God, who's created the earth and all of us, Lord. Your very creation itself declares your praise, Lord. You are infinitely holy, infinitely great, infinitely majestic, and infinitely glorious. So far above us, Lord. And yet, you've deemed fit to to pay attention to us, God. And not only that, Lord, but you've decided to have relationship with us. Even when we were in sin, Lord, even when we as a people have rejected you wholly and completely, God, you sent your Son to make a way for us to you, God. Lord, we just praise you for that. We stand in awe of that, God. And if our hearts have become cold to that fact, if our hearts have become dull to that reality, numb to that, Lord, I pray that you would awaken us this morning. Would you just shake our hearts, Lord, from from hearts of stone to turn them to hearts of flesh, God, that we could hear afresh your word this morning that declares salvation for us. Lord, bring us into closer intimacy with you. Lord, we want to know you. That's why we're here this morning. We want to know who you are. We want to learn about you, God. But we don't just want to learn about you, Lord. We We want to know you in a real and intimate way, God. And we praise you for the fact that you've provided that in your son Jesus. So Lord, we're here this morning to declare that. Declare your praise, God. And we confess that we are sinners. We confess that we are a sinful people. And we rejoice in the fact, Lord, that you have paid for that sin by the death of your son Jesus on the cross. And that three days after that, he rose, once and for all, defeating death and sin. And we rejoice in that, God. And we take great pleasure in that, Lord, and we praise you for that, Lord. Lord, we worship you this morning for who you are and for how great you are, Lord. And we pray all these things in the name of our great Savior and your great Son, Jesus. Amen. Let me get situated here. This is a new pulpit, by the way, so it's a little different here. If it's your first time here, welcome. Throughout the world, there are many, many different religions. And Christianity is without doubt the strangest of all of them. Now, you might not have thought about this before, but Christianity is weird, okay? Here's what I mean. And I think sometimes we don't realize this because in the 21st century America, right, Christianity has kind of historically been the religion of America, right? Now, we can debate that, whatever. But it's, it's, it's normal, Christianity is normal. We're very familiar with it for the most part. It's been around a long time, right? And some of us have grown up in churches, and all of us have grown up in a culture that 
has been somewhat Christian. In other words, we're very familiar with it. And I think that we become dulled because of that, numb to how strange it really is when compared to other religions. So, let, so, so let's think about that for a minute. Let's look at a couple different things. So let's look at Islam. As far as we know, Muhammad died around the age of 63 in Medina with his head being cradled in the lap of one of his 13 wives, Aisha. Okay, so 63 after a long life of, of ministry. Okay, Buddhism. Now, Buddhism's a little more difficult because the details of, of Buddha's life are a little more obscure, but from what we can get historically, Buddha died sometime in his 80s, um, still teaching, respected and revered greatly by people. Confucius, okay, Confucianism, the famous Chinese philosopher, died somewhere in his late 70s. Again, teaching, um, revered by people, respected greatly. And interestingly enough, still has the longest lineage of anyone in history that we know of. Alive today, he has over 2 million registered descendants. Confucius himself, across the world. So what we see with these is, all of these, all of these religious leaders, all of these founders of religion, lived long, respectful, reverent, long-lasting lives. They, they died in prosperity. But you see, then here's the problem, because we look at Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus' ministry could hardly have ended more differently from these. First of all, Jesus only ministered three years. And of his three-year-long ministry, it ended violently and abruptly when he was hauled away by Roman guards according to the screams and desires of his very own people. He was drugged before councils, spit on, beat into a bloody pulp, mocked and cursed at. His flesh was torn from his body, a crown of thorns mockingly smashed onto his head, and he was nailed to a Roman cross outside of the city and placarded like a hunted animal before the crowds. All but one of his closest followers des deserted him, denied him, and he died to the sounds of jeering, mocking, he died a criminal's death, forsaken by people, cursed by God, and buried in a borrowed tomb, too poor to even afford his own, and left to rot. You have to appreciate the difference there. I don't know if you've ever thought about, but let's let that sink in. And so if you're here today, and, and you've, you've kind of thought of Christianity as just one of the many world religions, as just kind of, you know, religion with Jesus packaging, you need to hear it with fresh ears, because it's utterly different, and I think you'll see that today as we continue. It's not just another religion. It's entirely set apart. And this is just one of the reasons, and we'll see. But think about it with me. Jesus didn't die in old age. He died when he was 33. He didn't die in prosperity. He didn't die respected. He died a shameful, disgraceful death, utterly humiliated. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul, the author of the letter to the Philippians is going to emphasize to us today. And the shocking truth is that Paul is going to urge us as believers in Jesus, as followers of this humiliated, beaten, executed criminal in the eyes of the people, to be like him in his willingness to suffer and be humiliated. Paul's going to urge us to go out of our way to put our brothers' and sisters' needs ahead of ours, to sacrifice our own lives and everything we have for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of each other. But before we even turn to the passage, I want to kind of give you a map of where we're going this morning, okay? So the sermon's going to be broken down like this. First, we're going to look at Jesus, and then we're going to respond. We're going to look at Jesus, and we're going to respond. So when we see Jesus, 
for what he's done. When we see Jesus for who he is, it always has a response. It always calls for a response from us. Because I think a lot of times what we do is we see Jesus, we learn about Jesus, and we go, okay, that's great. Um, awesome. Wow, Jesus is awesome. And then we walk away. But you see, the Apostle Paul, if you read, if you read the, the New Testament, you read the letters of Paul, you read the letters of James like we've been going through, you realize that that's never what we're called to. We're called to see Jesus and then respond to him in worship and in following him. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to see Jesus and we're going to respond. So as we hear what God has to say this morning through his word, I want to encourage you, let's not harden our hearts. Let's open our hearts to the spirit to speak to us this morning. Let us respond to him. Let's prepare ourselves to hear from the word of God. And so our passage this morning is going to be Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So go ahead and turn there with me. Um, But we're going to get to verse 5 at the end. So really, let's look at verse 6 through 11. Hear what Paul says to the Philippians, starting in verse 6. You know, he's talking about Jesus. He says, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, before we we really dig in, Especially when we're looking at the letters, when we're looking at the, the, the epistles, which is just a fancy word for the letters that are in the New Testament, we need to have some background information. Because if you take things out of context, it's really hard to understand them. I mean, have you ever been watching on TV that was really old, and you can tell they're making jokes that are supposed to be funny, but because it's old and you don't understand the references, you're like, okay, that was supposed to be funny, but I totally don't get it. You know? Um, it's kind of the same thing. To understand what Paul's saying to the Philippians, we kind of need to know a little bit about the Philippians and what their situation was, what their culture was. So bear with me as we, we learn a little bit about the city of Philippi and who these Philippians were that Paul was writing to. So we know, first of all, that Paul really loved the Philippians, if you, especially if you compare Philippians to other letters in the New Testament, um, especially like Galatians. If you compare Galatians and Philippians, um, there's a huge difference. We just went through Galatians recently, but Paul is really mad at the Galatians, to put it lightly. Um, He even says at one point, you foolish Galatians, what are you thinking? Well, the Philippians are different. See, the Philippians had supported Paul always in his ministry. And when you read the letter, you can just hear his heart for them, his love for them. And there's very little rebuking in the letter to the Philippians. And so it's important to know that. And it's important to know that Philippi, as a city, was in Greece. And it was founded around 400 B.C., um, so it had been around for a long time. And Philippi was the site of a very famous battle in history um, that established the Roman Empire called the Battle of Actium. Um, it's right near there. And so what happened was the, the victor of that battle, Augustus Caesar, who became the first emperor of Rome, established Philippi as a colony, a Roman colony, where he put a lot of his veterans. So Philippi was filled with army and naval veterans from the Roman legions. Now, this is very important because when we look at history and when we study Philippi, what we see is because it was an official Roman colony, which is like a legal term, 
um, this Greek city became very Romanized. So much so that as you would walk up to the city, now remember, the, the language of the day across the world was Greek. That was the common language. That's why our Bible's written in Greek. As you walked to the city or rode horse or whatever along the road, as you came closer to the city, the signs started changing from Greek into Latin because Latin was the language of the Roman Empire. And so you had this Greek city kind of in the middle of this huge Greek region, and they spoke Latin there. All the inscriptions are in Latin. Even the common people spoke Latin. And that just kind of gives us a hint as to how Roman this, this city was. Not only that, even the layout of the city and the architecture all mirrored Rome itself. The people of the day had a nickname for it. They called it Little Rome. Okay? And the reason that that's important for our passage today is because Philippi had a Roman society, a Roman culture. And Rome, Roman culture was known widely in the ancient world for one thing, for the most part. And that was this. They were obsessed with status. Status. So they were obsessed with titles, job titles, titles of senators and things like this. And so Philippi, and and we know this because archaeologists have literally dug up all these inscriptions and stuff that tell us this. Philippi and the Philippians were obsessed with status. I mean, to the nth degree, right? So we, we're kind of like that too, right? We brag on Twitter. We brag on Facebook. And, you know, celebrities just blah, 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 blah. And they brag. And we're kind of obsessed with status too. But they did this in their own way. So they didn't have Twitter. They didn't have Facebook. But the, the, the common thing in their day was they would pay for a fountain or they would pay for a building or they would pay for something in the city and then what they would do was they would inscribe their name on it and they would just start listing all of their achievements that they had accomplished in their life just all over the city and they've dug them up you can see pictures if you google it and so it would say things like I'm going to make this up but it would say things like you know John he was the senator of such and such he paid for this many buildings he paid for this fountain He was of the lineage of blah, 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 blah. And they would just go on and on about themselves. Extremely obsessed with pride. One writer at the time even says it blatantly. He says, they they weren't concerned about anything else but achieving the next level of status in their society in the eyes of everyone else, no matter what it cost, no matter who it hurt. So the Philippians were engrossed in this Roman culture. Much like us today. The, The status went so far that at the stadiums, at the coliseums, at social events, all the seating was arranged by what your status was. So if you came into church today and we were in the society right now, it'd say, okay, you guys get to sit up front. Um, okay, you can sit in the second row. Okay, what's your status? Okay, you can sit in the third, and so on and so forth. It's like a baseball stadium. You know, when you go to a baseball stadium, you find your ticket and you go sit in your seat. Well, it was the same way, except for according to your class, according to your status in the society at the time, that's where you would be placed. So this is extreme, okay? And so they, would, they, they had the, their, their seats at the Colosseums and things like that. They had their bragging that they did on the rocks. And so this is the culture of Philippi. And as we're going to see, Paul is going to make an extremely, extremely important point about this. But lest we just push that off on them and say, oh, stupid Philippians, they're so prideful. Are we not like the same ourselves? I mean, are we not always pursuing the next big thing, the bigger house, better cars, nicer clothes? I mean, the American dream, what is that 
except for a pursuit of status and, and happiness. It sounds eerily sim, sim, similar. So, so think about that as we go through this. And this is the mentality that Paul is going to attack in this passage. He's going to blow it to smithereens. And he's going to do that through the example of Jesus. Watch how Paul takes this custom in their society, this thing where they would list all their achievements going from smallest to greatest. He's going to do that for Jesus. Except for you'll notice one major difference. Jesus went from the highest status of all to the lowest status of all. And it just blows everything that they knew about status, about honor, and about loving each other to smithereens. Jesus set an entirely new precedent, an entirely new principle, and an entirely new standard. While the Romans spent their entire life trying to climb and ascend in status, Jesus will spend his life degrading and descending in status. So let's look at it piece by piece. So in Philippians 2.6, we're just going to go through and we're going to see what he has to say. Paul says about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, so first thing Paul teaches us right here is that Jesus was in the form of God. Well, what the heck does that mean? It means simply this, that he was in outward and inward appearance God. So if you have the NIV, it might say, who was in very nature God. That's a good interpretation of it. That's what it's saying. So, and you have to remember, this is taking place before Jesus was born, before Jesus became a man. So before Jesus became a man, he was in outward and inward God. He was in glory with the Father. He was the same status with God. He was divine. He could claim equal status with God. And if you can claim equal status with God, you are God. And we see this truth laid out really clearly in a couple places. And you look at Jesus' prayer in John 17, 5. He says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You see, Jesus was in glory with the Father before the world existed. So clearly, Jesus was with him. In Hebrews 1.3, listen to the way the author describes Jesus. He describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He was God, existing before the world. So what we clearly see is that Jesus was divine, and existing with the Father before the world existed. Equal with the Father. And equal, and yet what does Paul say next as we continue on in verse 6? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he was in nature God. He was equal with God. And yet he did not count that as something to be held on to. In other words, he did not consider his status as God as something to be used to his own advantage. You see what Paul's beginning to do here? He didn't view his status as something to be, to be held onto, to be used for his own advantage. He didn't say mine. But even though it was rightly his, he was willing to let it go. And I think we need to, we need to sit with that for a second. Because I think, again, this is one of those things that we just gloss over. I don't even know how to emphasize it except to repeat it. Jesus, who was God himself, did not consider his status as God as something to be used for his own advantage. Even though he rightly held that status. I mean, think about that. It is so important to realize that he is like this. He, he is this giving because it is of his deepest nature and character to be this giving. That is the character of God, to pour himself out 
for us. It's not like it was a choice that Jesus was forced to make. He willingly let go of his status for our benefit because of his own goodness and who he is. Now, there is no other God like this in any history, in any religion, anywhere except Jesus. But this is our God. Can you just see how beautiful that is? How beautiful he is. That he would let go of his status, his rightful status of glory with the Father for our advantage. He would use that for our advantage. So let's continue. In verse 7 it says, But, and so rather than hold on to his status with God, rather than be in glory with God, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus decides, being equal with God, decides to empty himself. And don't misunderstand this. This text is not saying that he ceased to be divine when he became a human, but rather he emptied himself of the glory and status that he had with God the Father. And instead, and listen to this, he chose to display the character of God by becoming a human, a real human. Don't forget, Jesus was truly a man. And if you would have seen him, you would have just thought he was just an average guy. He didn't look any different. He got hungry. He got tired. He got frustrated and angry, but he never sinned. He was truly a man, but not merely a man. Fully God and fully man. But you see, Jesus didn't just become any human. He became a poor slave, a servant. He came here to be a servant to humankind. God himself, the creator God, came here to be a servant to humankind, to serve us. That is crazy. That's unreal. It doesn't make any sense. It's a, that's a scandal. Who, who does that? No one. God became a slave. Who, I mean, who in their right mind would trade the highest status and power for that of a slave? No one. But there is one who would do that, Jesus himself, our Savior. Because that is his deepest nature, to give and to pour himself out. He would willingly sacrifice. Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that's an understatement, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Do you hear that? He is so graceful, so merciful, he willingly became utterly poor for your sake, for my sake, that by his poverty, by his humility, Humiliation, by his degradation as a slave, we might attain honor with him. We might be in relationship with him. He didn't deserve that. We deserve that, and yet he sacrificed for us, and we have to hear that with fresh ears. If we just let that go over our heads, we don't get it. We can't take Jesus' sacrifice for granted. We can't take his character for granted. We can't let our hearts be dulled to this truth. We need to be reawakened to it. Because that's what powers the Christian life. And so as we continue to follow Jesus down, down the stairs, descending in honor, accruing shame for himself, as we remember that the Roman society we talked about was all about achieving status, Think about how the people in Philippi would be hearing this letter. They would be hearing about Jesus just utterly confused. And he is going to descend even farther now as we continue. The climax of his shame and degradation. And I just want to pause here for a minute because 
Before we continue, this next verse, again, is one of those ones that we can just hear and go, okay. But this verse, right, this next verse is revolutionary. It changes everything. This is the, the ultimate degrading of our God, the creator God himself. So listen, listen to what Paul says in verse 8. So he was God, he was status, he was equal with God. He gave that up to be born in a human form. And listen to what Paul says in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I mean, the thought of this is just mind-blowing. And, I, and I, I think we might miss this emphasis a little bit, okay? Because in our culture, humility is kind of thought of as a virtue. I um, mean, when you see someone and you would say they're a humble person, that would be thought of as something good. Okay. In Roman culture, humility was not a virtue. So we hear Jesus humbled himself and we're like, oh, okay. I mean, you know, he's a good teacher. It seems like a good thing to do. Okay. You know, I can respect that. In Roman culture, this is not respected. You achieve status. You don't humble yourself. That's degrading. Oh, it's stupid. So remember that. They thought Jesus was a fool. Not the Christians, but you can read Romans at the time writing about Jesus. The historian Tacitus writes about Jesus and says, some Jewish fool who got himself crucified. I mean, he's a disgrace in their eyes. He's a humiliating human being who deserved nothing but scorn and shame and ridicule. And it's not even, it's not, to, to emphasize it even more, it's not even as if Jesus was humbled. Because that's not what it says. Or, or, it's, or he was forced into it. Or it happened to him. This was no accident. It's not a coincidence. It's not even a chance. It says he humbled himself. He willingly endured this shame, this disgrace, and this humiliation for us, for you and me, so that he could bear our burdens. Again, he chose this. He, this didn't happen to him. This God-man, Jesus, by whom all things were created the Bible tells us, and all things came into being, became obedient to death. I mean, do you understand what this took? Okay, death could not take Jesus without his permission. He's God. He was sinless. He's not subject to death. Yet by his own extreme act of humiliation, he let death separate him from his body. He physically died. He gave up to death. He became obedient to death. God himself became obedient to death. I mean, this is just utter humiliation, utter debasement, the ultimate lowering. And even if that's not enough, Paul adds this one last emphatic statement to clarify what type of death it was. Even death on a cross. I mean, a cross. Don't miss this. And I think a lot of times we think of the cross and what we emphasize is the physical suffering of Jesus, which is by no means to be minimized. But that's not what Paul is emphasizing here. Paul is emphasizing the utter humiliation that death by cross brought with it. So in this culture at this time, you have to understand what a cross meant. We, see, we are kind of numb to it again because the cross for us has become a symbol of Christianity, has become a symbol of love, has become a symbol that we just see all the time driving around on the street corner. It wasn't like this in the first century. The cross 
was the most humiliating, degrading way to die. You were nailed to a piece of wood, naked, and again, placarded before men and women for everyone to just walk by and, what an idiot, look at this guy, what a fool. Like, it, like some type of hunted animal. And it was so much humiliating that if you were a Roman citizen, if you possessed Roman citizenship, it was actually illegal for you to be crucified. Because they figured that if you were a Roman citizen, you at least possess enough dignity that you shouldn't be crucified. It was illegal. Even, no matter what you did, even if you were a murderer, you couldn't be crucified if you were a Roman citizen. They reserved that for the dregs of society. They thought crucifixion, in fact, was so horrible that the word for cross in Latin was next to profanity in polite Roman society. You just didn't mention it. Didn't mention it. Crucifixion was reserved for the dregs of society, the scum of the earth, the slaves. In fact, that was one nickname they had for it in the day. It was a slave's death. That's what they called it. Because a slave was the one who deserved crucifixion. It wasn't deserved of a normal human being. Anyone that had any ounce of integrity, of dignity. The only type of person it was fit for was the most debased and disgusting criminals and slaves. The Jews even taught, rightly so, that anyone who was crucified was cursed by God and caught off from the people forever. And Jesus was, for you and for I. And so there he hangs. I mean, picture him on a cross. The creator of all things, by who all things came into existence, nailed to a tree, cursed and forsaken by God, naked, humiliated, degraded, and executed like a traitor, a slave. Now that's the death that we deserve to die. That was our punishment to bear. We are the guilty ones. We are the traitors. We are the criminals. You know it and I know it. We all have a laundry list of sins and horrible things we have thought and actually committed. We're sinful people. And yet in the midst of our sin, knowing full well our rebellion and rejection of him, Jesus saw us, his people, and said, yes, they are utterly sinful and deserving of the full wrath of God, but I love them and I will take their place. I will take that burden on my shoulders. I will take the punishment for all of the horrible things they have done and thought. See, we know we all have a weight on our shoulders. We all carry a burden. It's called sin. Whether you say you believe it or not, you can't deny that it's true. We are all guilty before God. But we don't have to be. And that is the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice. He took all of our guilt, all of the shame that we so rightly deserved and took it upon his own shoulders so that now we can place our burdens on him. He offers to take it for us. So give it to him. He is calling all men and women to himself for this very purpose. And we're going to see that in this next section. So let's continue. And there's going to be a change here. So even death on a cross. Jesus is at the lowest point. He's debased. He's a dead slave worthy of nothing. Therefore, though, Paul says in verse 9, in a sense saying, that is why God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that's an amen right there. 
Paul essentially says right here that because of his self-humbling, God has exalted him to the highest place of all. Jesus has now bestowed and given the name that is above every name. And in light of the Old Testament, it's clear what that name is. It is the name of Yahweh himself, Lord, God, the very name of God. The name Lord, Lord of all things. This is the goal and the end result of his humbling. He has been exalted, lifted up, and glorified and seated with God to rule and reign forever. He has been vindicated and he has been officially titled as Lord of all things. He possesses all authority on heaven and earth. But notice where the text then goes with it. He says, every knee will bow. That means that all people one day will submit to Jesus. One day all will recognize him as king. All people and all creatures everywhere. All will confess that he is Lord, that he is God. That's what Paul is saying. And this is at once the most terrifying and the most relieving thing that could be uttered. Because it's relieving and beautiful for those who love Jesus and who acknowledge him as Lord now. But it's terrifying for those who reject him as Lord. See, but Paul's not just pulling this language out of his own head. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 45. This is where he's pulling this idea from. This is what it says in in Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. They will say of me, In the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But in the Lord, all descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exult. So it separates us into two groups. Will you be found in him righteous or will you be put to shame? You see, it automatically divides us. Those who will willingly acknowledge Jesus and his lordship and those who will be forced to acknowledge it in utter defeat. You see, we're living right now in the process of this becoming a reality. But one day when Jesus returns, it'll be over. We will all stand before him, accountable to him. Those who freely acknowledge Jesus as king will reign with him in glory forever, in eternal life. And those who reject him will be forever cast away. This is a glorious truth because it means that one day, as the book of Revelation says, all things will be made new. All will be set right. All pain will all sin, all death, Satan himself and all bad things will bow to Jesus' name and will be done away with forever. We will live in the fullness of joy in the very presence of our King and Savior in glory for all eternity. Imagine that. But I urge you today, do not be numbered among those who have rejected him. Turn to him, cast yourself upon his mercy and cry out to him in prayer. He will save you. He is faithful and he will do it. All that means is this. Stop trusting in your own goodness. You can't do it. You're not good enough. Jesus made a way so that you don't have to. Trust in him. Admit your weakness to him and depend on him. And so in this passage, we have seen Jesus, our great God and Savior, humiliated for us. But remember what I said at the beginning. We're going to see Jesus and then we're going to respond. Well, now it's time for us to respond. Now, If you're here as a believer, it's going to call you to a certain response. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you you don't believe in Jesus, your faith is not in Jesus, I urge you to just just think on that, meditate on that. Continue to think about that and your decision. 
But for those of us who would call themselves Christians, followers of Christ, the Apostle Paul is going to call us to action. You see, all these amazing things we just learned about Jesus, all of it was put into this letter by Paul for a very specific reason, and it wasn't just to teach us about Jesus. It wasn't even primarily to teach us about Jesus. So let's go back to verse 5. This is what Paul says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was also in Christ Jesus. Underline that verse in your Bible, because it's so important. So what he's saying is, all this stuff that we just heard about Jesus humiliating himself, degrading himself, the reason he's telling us like that is he says, we as Christians should be like that. We should have that mindset that we would be willing to go through that much humiliation for our brothers and sisters. So let's back up even a little more. I'm just going to read from verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to how he sets up the section that we've just spent a long time looking at. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, and that's where our passage enters. And then Paul starts talking about Jesus. See, this entire thing is about teaching us to be humble. Putting others' needs higher than ours. See, it's easy when we're learning about Jesus to get all fired up and say, yeah, and amen. But when Paul turns it on us and says, so be like that, we go, whoa, uh, uh, I don't know about that. But that's exactly what he's saying. When push comes to shove, will we follow what Paul commands of us, what the Holy Spirit is telling us right here? It's easy to say we love Jesus, but are we willing to follow his example? Are we willing to be humiliated, degraded for the sake of others, for the kingdom of God? Are we willing to put others' needs higher than our own? That's what God is calling us to this morning. And where the rubber meets the road here is how we treat each other. Are we patient with each other? Are we tender, loving? Or are we quick to get frustrated, quick to get angry, quick to make that hurtful remark? Is our willingness to place other people's needs and interests and feelings above our own obvious? What about our marriages? And I mean, I recently got married, so I know a little bit that marriage is not easy. But that doesn't give us an excuse. If humility and self-love toward each other doesn't mark our marriages, are we any better than the world? Anybody can get mad or make a post on Facebook, you know, oh, I can't believe they're approving same-sex marriages in this state or so-and-so, but then we go home and we're harsh and unloving to our wives, to our husbands. Are we any better? Have we dishonored marriage any less? I don't think so. Husbands, do your wives feel close to you, loved by you, respected by you? Are you listening to them and what they need? And wives, do your husbands feel close to you, respected by you, and loved by you? See, as hard as it is, humility starts right at home, the closest people to us. And I think what we do to get out of it is we make it some extreme circumstance, right? That's how we avoid responsibility. You know what I'm talking about. Something like, well, you know, if someone put a gun to my head, I would die for Jesus. And that's great and that's respectable, but most likely that's never going to happen. How about we live for him now? How about right now, right here, we go home in our marriages, in our relationships, with our families, here at church, we treat each other 
like God tells us to treat each other, like Jesus treated us. Don't declare yourself a follower of Jesus if you're not willing to lay everything on the table. Because the thing is, Jesus had infinitely more than any of us, infinitely more glory, infinitely more status, and he gave it all up and humbled himself, humiliating himself for us. And he is saying to us today, if you want to follow me, love each other well. Count each other as more significant than yourselves. Put away your selfish ambitions. Stop chasing after things for yourself. You can't follow Jesus and not desire to live like this. You can't. Humble yourself. Humiliate yourself. Be willing to do it. Now to conclude, what we're going to see is all of us here are in one of four categories. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to describe these four categories, and I want you to meditate and think on which category I'm in today. What category do I fall into? And then we're going to respond accordingly. And remember, as we go through this, we do this all in the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus. We're not earning his love. We're just responding to his love. So for those who trust in him, remember, there is no condemnation for sin. Let there be no guilt and shame among the people of God. So there's four categories. I have really cheesy titles for them. There's the succeeders, the pleaders, the whatevers, and the rejectors. And this is all this means. The succeeders are the people who are totally succeeding at living this way. They, they're humble. Everyone else's needs are ahead of theirs, and they don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Okay? The pleaders are those who go, man, I'm not that way, but Lord, make me that way. I want to be like that. I want to follow you, Jesus. The whatevers are those who, whether or not they call themselves Christian, just kind of go, yeah, okay, like, Matt Church, cool, like, humility, Jesus, awesome, whatever, you know. Um, just going to walk out of here and not be phased. And the rejectors are those who say, yeah, I don't buy any of this. So there's different applications depending on where you're at. If you're a succeeder, if you're just totally succeeding in this, well, you're probably prideful, first of all. But <laughs> if you think that. Um, but obviously some of us really are more humble than, our, than others. Some of us have been, by God's grace, conformed to the image of Christ. And I would encourage you, continue. Don't compare yourself to others and continue to pray that God would keep you that way. But I think most of us are in the pleaders category. And I, this is where I'm at, and I think this is a good place to be. This is our job here, to keep praying and to keep pleading with God to humble us and to teach us and to empower us to be transformed into the image of his son, Jesus. See, it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us that we can do any of this. We can't do it on our own. It's not going to do us any good to walk out of here today and you say, you know what? I read the Bible. I need to be more humble. I'm going to do it right now in my own strength. I can do this. I'm going to make a little five-step plan. I'm going to do it. It's not going to work because it's a heart issue. We know that. And so we need the power of the Holy Spirit, and that comes through prayer. That's why I call us the pleaders because we're pleading with God. God, if you don't change me, I can't change myself. You have to do it. So my encouragement for you this morning is to keep pleading with God, keep praying for humility, and also to ask forgiveness. The bottom line is, if you're in this category, you've failed. You've been prideful towards people. You've been hurtful. Go to the people who have been hurt by your pride today and ask for forgiveness. Don't wait till tomorrow. Do it today. Is it your wife, your husband, your friend, brother, sister? Ask forgiveness. What more humbling is there than to ask forgiveness? And on the flip side of that, give forgiveness 
If someone comes to you and wants forgiveness, give it. Nothing marks a lack of humility more than unwillingness to forgive or unwillingness to ask for forgiveness. And another thing I would have to encourage us is meditate on Jesus' example daily. Memorize Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Write it, put it on your wall, do whatever you have to. Realize your place before Jesus and what he's done for you. And so the third category is the whatevers. Now this is tricky because I think that anyone who would rightfully be in this category probably doesn't think they're in this category. But you need to wake up. If you just have a lackadaisical attitude, if you just kind of have a come to church on Sundays and that's my Christian life, you know, you need to wake up. You need to ask God to forgive you of your cold heart. Ask him to awaken you. Repent of your lack of interest in the things of God and thank him for his mercy, for his mercy and his grace cover even the times when we're cold towards him. Praise God for that. And the fourth category, the rejectors. If you are here this morning and you just don't buy this, I've got to be honest with you. You're in a bad place. You're placing yourself in the way of God's wrath. The Bible describes people who reject Jesus as Lord as storing up wrath for themselves. That is not a good place to be. But listen, that's the good news. You don't have to be there anymore. I don't care what you've done, what your history is, how much emotional and spiritual baggage you're carrying with you. It doesn't matter. Jesus invites you now, today, to come to him and be free of all of that. Let him take it for you. He offers peace, healing, and salvation and restoration with him. All you have to do is turn from yourself to him. Acknowledge you're a sinner and place your hope in him as your savior. He is waiting for you. And when that trumpet sounds on that last day, Join us as the ones who will joyfully acknowledge his lordship. Don't be numbered among those who will be put to shame. You don't have to be. Jesus offers all of us eternal life. Would you take it today? So I want to pause for a moment and just reflect on that. Before the worship team comes up, before we continue, I just want to give you a few minutes to just go before God in prayer. Whatever, wherever you're at today, whatever category you're at, and uh, just spend some time with the Lord. So go ahead and do that for a few minutes. Heavenly Father, I don't know where everyone's at today, God, but you do. Lord, I pray that you would meet each person here today where they're at. Lord, encourage those who are struggling. Encourage those who are are struggling with pride, who are struggling with not being able to forgive people, who are struggling with not being able to ask for forgiveness. Encourage us this morning, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, I I ask you to encourage us to follow after you. Empower us to live with that mindset that was in our King, Christ Jesus, who gave up all for us, Lord. Help us to joyfully do that for each other. Let us love each other willingly and joyfully, God. And Lord, I, I pray for those here who who are unsure or don't kind of know what this is about, haven't heard much of this type of stuff before, maybe new. might be the first time they've heard, heard things like this, Lord. Lord, reveal yourself to them. Reveal your grace to them, God. Reveal your power to them. Reveal your love to them. Just surround them with your comfort and love, God. Turn them to you. 
And Lord, allow them to put their faith in you as, your, as their Savior. Lord, we praise you this morning, God. We praise you that you have redeemed us for yourself. That through the sacrifice of your Son, you willingly let him go so that we might be brought near to you and remain with you for all eternity in glory. God, we praise you for that. You are so good and so amazing. Let us never be dull to that. Let us never be cold to that. And let that fact inform the way that we live and the way that we treat each other. And may, through our lives, may we glorify you and be ever more conformed to the image of Jesus. Lord, we love you so much. We can only pray these things because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And we thank you for that. In his glorious name, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith@orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.